Rana Mitter teaches Chinese history and politics at Oxford University. Rana, welcome to China Talk. What is it like being one of these Western historians who has an enormously important historical event of which there are only a handful of people writing about in English? It's a bit strange, actually, Jordan, in a sense, because you feel that when you're dealing with China, and the event we're talking about here is the 75th anniversary of the victory over Japan, the end of World War II, which took place essentially in August, September of, of this year, just just gone by, 2020. When you're looking at the Chinese public sphere talking about that particular event, you feel that if it's not the most important anniversary in the world, at least it's definitely you know in the top two or three. And then yeah. you know you step outside the front door. I mean. This is an event, of course, that has a certain amount of resonance even now, seventy-five years on the end of World War Two. But the Chinese end of it is so far off the spectrum that it's pretty much invisible, and you end up a little bit, I think, like someone who、uh, almost kind of brought, you know, the, the wrong bottle of wine to the party or something of,、uh, of of that sort, or maybe not the wrong one, but you know, someone will take a glass and say, "Hmm, unusual flavor, interesting," and then kind of go back to what they used to,、uh, to drinking. But you know the the overall answer is absolutely that you end up thinking, look, this is a topic that, like it, hate it, people really need to know about, and perhaps feeling a bit more frustrated that in the country of your research, it is at least understood that you're dealing with something important at home. Maybe people don't really perceive it as being quite that way, whether it's in the U.S. or in the U.K. Sure, I remember reading your first book, which was a, a, a sort of general history of China in World War II. Today, we'll be talking most about your most recent one, which is exploring the historical memory and how World War II has been remembered over the past seventy-five years. But I was just blown away that all this stuff happened, and I was never taught about it. And I was like a World War II nerd growing up. So it's just maybe we can do one step back, Rana. Like, how did how did this this time period grab you in, in grad school or whatever? Absolutely. So I've been feel like I've been living with China in the 1930s and 40s for a very long time. I'm now,、uh, fortunately, because it's a podcast, nobody can see me, but I'm much older and much fatter and much grayer than I used to be,、uh, perhaps a quarter of a century ago when I was an eager grad student. And I have to say, you, you say World War Two in China was my previous book, which was a sort of wider history of of, of World War Two between 1937 and 45 in China. In the U.S., it has a title, Forgotten Ally. Elsewhere, including in Britain, it's just called China's War with with Japan. But I'm afraid that was not my first journey down the river of this period. In fact, my first study, which was my doctoral dissertation, which became the first book that I wrote, was about Manchuria, about the northeast of China, and the Japanese occupation of that area in 1931. For those who know the China scene, which I think is a lot of people listening to your podcast, Jordan, I have to say, that is Jiu Yiba, the 18th September 1931, which of course. Nowadays, in China, officially has been decreed the beginning of the Second World War in terms which the Chinese Communist Party has laid down for the official understanding of history. But I hasten to add that was not my reason more than a quarter of a century ago for looking at that topic. I think I found it intriguing because I'd studied Chinese in university in, in England, and I found myself more and more interested in in the historical side of things. But in particular, I found myself fascinated that things that Maybe had a certain amount of familiarity from the Western history that I had been taught looked quite different when you looked at them from the Chinese point of view. So let me explain what I mean by that. In the case of, of that first project, if you know anything about Manchuria from the standard, certainly British high school or university history curriculum, it's About Manchuria as a diplomatic incident, in other words, you know the rise of fascism, the Nazis in Europe, the Japanese in Asia, 
And that, first of all, you know, well, eventually you get, of course, Hitler invading large parts of Europe. But it's always said that the forerunner in 1931 was when the Japanese invaded Manchuria and the League of Nations did nothing. And that's become quite a well-known diplomatic story. So I find myself reading this and thinking, well, hang on. What happens if you look at what the people who are actually being invaded think about this? Did they react the same way as these interdiplomatic institutions? You know, did they have the same reaction as all these very elite people in Europe looking at the question? And what I was able to do, thanks to studying under actually a very distinguished scholar, Hans van der Ven, very well-known historian in the field of uh, Cambridge University in, in England, was to look at this wider issue of what happened on the ground when the invasion happened and how did it then get sort of recreated into a kind of historical myth. And to cut a long book very, very short, I would say that one of the things I was intrigued to discover was that as in most invasions and occupations around the world, yes, there were people who resisted the Japanese invasion back in 1931-32. But first of all, lots of them, in fact, most of them were not communists, as the Communist Party doctrine has tended to say. Second, much larger numbers of people just got on with it, you know, essentially collaborated with the invasion because that's what people do. And third, the whole myth of massive resistance to the evil Japanese invasion was actually very largely constructed with great brilliance by northeastern Chinese nationalists who made their way down into the mainland of China, you might say, outside Manchuria, and created this wider sense that getting Manchuria back had to be a great national task. So in a sense, it was a kind of case study, a first run for the much bigger story of why World War II as a whole affected Chinese nationalism. In other words, the reality of who actually resists, the reality that some people will collaborate with the enemy because that's what people do in wartime, and the much bigger story of how you separate the really messy, often awkward and politically incorrect story of what happens on the ground with the grand narrative myth of resistance to the foe without end, which of course is what we've ended up with decades later. Before we jump into the memory part, I think it would behoove us for you to give, I don't know, a six-minute version of the series of events from uh, from 37 to 45. One of the things that is, I think, very important when we try and understand why World War II and the experience of World War II in China matters, first of all, to the Chinese, and then, of course, to the rest of the world. And I point out that China is, of course, still about a quarter of the world's population. So just with the Chinese, you're hitting a lot of, uh, of humanity on Earth. And to do that, particularly to a Western audience, I, I generally do find that I have to just spend a few minutes explaining the key facts of World War II in China, because it's just not a well-known theatre. And what is known is often slightly mythicized, either by the Chinese side or by the Western side, which regards China sometimes as kind of a backwater in World War II, which I think is not true at all. So essentially... The main body of the Second World War in China is the single longest theatre of World War II on the Allied side. In other words, it doesn't begin in 1939, as in Europe, doesn't begin with 1941 with Pearl Harbour, as some American historians might wish to believe. But it begins in 1937 with the attack between or the fighting between locally stationed Japanese and Chinese troops on the outskirts of Beijing, a little village called Wanping, which now hosts a huge museum of World War II in China, which we may get to later on as a topic in its own right. But of course, that clash between these troops in 1937 that very quickly balloons out of control from small numbers of, you know, hundreds of troops outside Beijing to being a continental war in which Japan and China 
as nations go to war, didn't, of course, just break out in 1937. It's the culmination, essentially, of two different ideological forces coming up against each other during that period. And those two forces are Chinese nationalism, which grows and develops, particularly amongst the elites in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, and Japanese imperialism, which, of course, is a form of nationalism in itself, but also basically was an increasingly how you might put it, sort of kind of chauvinistic uh, ideology that to really get to the top table in international diplomacy, Japan had to form an empire of its own. And of course, by taking Taiwan, Korea, small parts of Manchuria, and then eventually the whole of Manchuria in 1931, Japan was carrying on a sort of imperial progress as it invaded and occupied large parts of China. So these two forces come to a head in 1937. And the war itself then goes on essentially in two parts, 1937 up to 1941, Pearl Harbor, where China is essentially, I'll use the word carefully, but essentially fighting on its own against the Japanese. Yes, there's some assistance from Soviet fighter pilots. Okay, there's a certain amount of American volunteer assistance in the air, the famous flying tigers that some people may have heard of. The British actually do a certain amount to get some finance through Hong Kong into the Chinese government. But in terms of you know soldiers fighting on the ground, it's Chinese troops, and most of it, not all of it, is Chinese nationalist Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek troops, or troops loosely affiliated to Chiang Kai-shek, which is not necessarily the same thing. The, Ch- the Chinese communists also have an important role, but it's it's a secondary role at this, this stage, an important secondary role. Guerrilla warfare, of course, being the very well-known part of that, that contribution. And then you flip sides, after 1941, that's when the part of the Asian war that we tend to know better in the West comes about. That's the Pacific War, combined with the China theatre. So Pearl Harbor, the attack by the Japanese on American warships, and of course, both the British Empire and the Americans come into the, the war at that point. And in my previous book, I call this a toxic alliance, because in a sense, while of course, there's no way that the Chinese could have been on the winning side, had they not had the Americans and indeed the British to help them out, none of these sides really trusted each other. And the Americans ended up in a very sort of a mindset in which they felt the Chinese were essentially ungrateful for not giving them enough credit for the help that they'd had. Whereas, of course, the Chinese thought that the Americans were ungrateful for not having given enough credit to the Chinese for holding the fort for four and a half years before Pearl Harbor. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any Asia to come. And, and, and uh, you know, having millions of people die on their behalf. You know. Well, I mean, let's get to that. I mean, perhaps just to sum up this point, a couple of bullet points on statistics. So while we do not have exact casualty figures because keeping records was very, very hard in wartime China, most reliable figures will suggest that over 10 million, maybe as many as 14 million Chinese died during the war, some from direct combat, some from being bombed, air raids and so forth, but lots from disease, starvation and all sorts of other directly war caused factors. In addition, 80 to 100 million Chinese became refugees in their own country during that period. Many of them eventually made their way home, but it was still a huge dislocation, which I think really undermined China in a whole variety of ways. The very hard-won infrastructure, we're talking railways, roads, marketing networks that have been built up with, you know, immense uh, care, but also, you know, quite flawed in some ways, nonetheless, were all destroyed, smashed to smithereens during the wartime years. And perhaps just to leave with this statistic, because it's one that in the West, we really don't tend to remember, Whatever you think of the Chinese troops at the time, and let's be honest, they were undertrained, they were underfed, they were underorganized. 
Somehow, these guys managed to hold down over half a million Japanese troops for four and a half years. Japanese high command, we know from documents, thought that the China war, the China incident, they called it, uh, the Chiken, you know, it wasn't even a proper war. It was going to be over in three months, you know, they'd be home in time for, uh, you know, a good new year and then, you know, invading somewhere else. And the emperor himself asked, by the time of Pearl Harbor, well, you told me China was going to be over in a few months, why are we still there? So that element of essentially holding down troops who could not be defeated, Japanese troops who could not be defeated by the, the Chinese side. I think that's fairly clear. But nonetheless, the Japanese couldn't defeat them either. And that is an important contribution to the global history of what ultimately we've come to know sure. as World War II. So let's come to, uh, let's start on the memory. So we have the war ends. Of course, we have a civil war, which Mao, for reasons we'll talk about on another podcast, uh, emerges victorious. Jiang Geshur heads out to Taiwan, and Mao has to stick a country together and sort of deal with and put the trauma of the past 15 years into context. So what in the Mao era was the dominant narrative about how to think about all the sacrifices of the Chinese people during, uh, during World War II? I think, Jordan, that looking at the way in which Mao's China looked at World War II as a phenomenon tells us a huge amount about this bigger question of the creation of national identity in China, because it's worth contrasting it with the other allied powers. So after 1945, America, it thinks about other things, but, you know, World War II is in the words of the great oral historian Studs Terkel, the good war that helps to create the idea of America as a really global power that is going to spread light and democracy around the world. Doesn't always do it, I have to say, but, you know, the message comes essentially from that 1945 moment. Or Britain losing its empire consoles itself with the fact that it fought a good war during the, the Second World War years and uses that thought to console itself after 1945. Russia, even to this day, is using the idea of the so-called Great Patriotic War as this huge message about how, when push comes to shove, the Russians really will fight back. And China, therefore, becomes the exceptional allied power in the sense that it's not spending that post-war period, that post-1945 period, really stressing the idea of the war against the Japanese as a major factor in shaping national identity. Let's be clear. It's not absent. It's very much there. Uh, if you look on the anniversaries, you know, 1955-65, you'll find in People's Daily that there are commemorations of the end of the war against the Japanese. And there are portraits, particularly of communist soldiers, you know, charging Japanese enemy with bayonets or whatever. So it's not absent from the culture. But those who know about Mao's China, I think there's a lot of people listening to, to this, will know that that World War II experience is not the most central element of defining China at that time, as opposed to class struggle or ultimately cultural revolution or actually anti-Americanism, particularly after the Korean War, which we may get back to in a different way. And one of the major reasons for that, there are several, but one of the major ones is that, of course, to tell a full and comprehensive story of China's victory in World War II, I think we can call it a victory. I think that's fine. You have to talk about the Kuomintang. You have to talk about Jiang Jishui, Chiang Kai-shek. You, you have to talk about the fact that actually the vast majority of the set-piece battles and actually the vast majority of military casualties were suffered not by communist troops, but by nationalist troops. And that is problematic if you are Mao and you are basically telling a story about how the Kuomintang are the ultimate enemy who were chased off the mainland to Taiwan in 1949, never to be seen again. There's no space in that narrative to tell a more positive story about, well... Maybe actually they did have a contribution to, to make. And that really operates through the whole of the Mao period and starts to change. And it does change 
only in the early 1980s, a long time after the war has finished. Okay, take us to Deng Xiaoping and the sort of new strains of academic thinking and, and sort of popular memory, which start to surface in light of changing the cross-strait relations. So the Deng Xiaoping era, as in so many things, marks a real change for China when it comes to collective memory, social memory of World War II. And, you know, as, of, as we all know, this is also the period when China really changes path economically, starts reintroducing limited and then less limited markets. It's a time when, of course, it's opening to the world in terms of trying to engage with the United States. All sorts of things are happening. And World War II is part of that. And the way that people started to note it, the way that people started to, to see it, was that in the 1980s, and then going on to the 90s and beyond in a much bigger way, the discussion of World War II, the discussion of China's war against Japan, not just as the Chinese Communist Party leading the fight against the old enemy, uh, against the Japanese enemy, but also China as an anti-fascist actor, becomes much more prominent in public culture in China. And even more surprisingly, in the eyes of many, the old enemy, the Kuomintang, start to actually turn up with a rather positive rating in some places. So in the mid-1980s, the first movie appears about the Battle of Taiyuan, which is this uh, short-lived, but at the time, very, very morale-boosting victory in April 1938 against the Japanese during that war. But of course, it was fought not by communist troops, but by nationalist troops, although particularly nationalist troops under Li Zongren, who weren't necessarily entirely tied to Chiang Kai-shek. So there are factional issues within that. But nonetheless, it was a real turning point. In addition, it's in 1987 that you get the opening of this institution I mentioned briefly before, the museum or memorial to the People's War of Resistance Against Japanese Aggression, as it's called to this day. Just outside Wanping. You've, you've been there, Jordan, I think. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, right, it's right near Marco Polo Bridge, right? It's like that really long, white museum. That's the, and, there's the, and there's that old fort right next to it. You can sort of walk down. Sorry. That's the same one. Exactly yeah. right. And of course, it's no coincidence that it's been built right at the site of the Marco Polo Bridge, because, of course, that's the opening shots of that longer war yeah. of resistance. So the question is, how, how on people are saying, you know, why is there so much mention of World War II beginning in the 1980s? that encompasses a much wider history than just the history of the Chinese Communist Party and their fight against the Japanese. And I think there are a couple of reasons. One is to do with Taiwan. It's very pragmatic. You know, in the, the 80s, plenty of the old Guomindang of the older generation are still alive and, and living on the island. Not Chiang Kai-shek, he died in 75, but other younger ones were, were still there. And I suppose the idea was that by being a bit more generous about the Guomindang contribution to the wartime effort, the CCP at the time could try and create some grounds for mutual discussion, which might eventually lead to reunification, although yeah. it hasn't happened yet. I think you pointed this out at one point. Like At that time, both countries were trending towards each other, right? You had this autocrat leaving the scene and, 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 and Taiwan slowly democratizing. And the same thing was happening from a different direction. But also in the early 80s, there was a lot of optimism about the way that CCP governance could evolve. So like it really wasn't quite as far-fetched at that point as it is today when you really have people opposed. I think that's a really important important point. Because again, particularly considering the world we live in now, where you know the Taiwan question, whatever that question is, is still very much with us. It's worth remembering how similar but how different the early 1980s were. Yeah, as you said, um, Jordan, I mean, at that time, both the PRC and the ROC on Taiwan were liberalizing autocracies. They were still both autocracies. They weren't democracies yet, and they were liberalizing in different ways. But they were kind of in the same sort of place in terms of global trajectory, you might say. And beyond that, another issue is that 
in the early 80s, as opposed to post-1989 in Tiananmen Square, both Taiwan and the mainland were still pretty friendly towards the United States really and still very wary of the Soviet Union. So in geopolitical terms, the situation was quite different from what it is now. And that's, you've got your pink finger on it, I think one of the reasons why the World War II story was useful at that stage. But let's not forget the old enemy. At that time in the early 1980s, after a sort of period of quiescence, I think a lot of the more ideologically minded folk in Beijing were keen to sort of get Japan a bit more back in its box. They felt that Japan was getting a little bit too enthusiastic for a wider global role. And they wanted to remind them, particularly the right wing in Japan, which they you know, claimed to believe might be dangerous. I'm not sure they actually believed that, but it was, it was a useful thing to say that they need to be reminded about the history, of course, of appalling atrocities committed by the Japanese during World War II. So a new story about World War II that on the one hand could try and perhaps boost relations with Taiwan, could try and shame Japan. And then the third, and perhaps in a sense, I think most important thing, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, China's Good War, as you know, Jordan, is that it was about the Chinese rethinking their own identity. This was a moment when the Cultural Revolution was passed. It had been officially repudiated, or to some extent anyway, by the resolution on certain question in our party's history in 1981. But of course, it hadn't faded from memories at all. It was still very raw, very recent at that stage. And it seems to me, looking at the documentation, you can see it in some of the documents I've used in the book, e.g. from the very veteran communist historian Yodanian, that actually finding some kind of narrative which was about bringing people together across ideological divides in China. So it doesn't matter if you were nationalist or communist from the north of China, south of China, whatever it might be, everyone in this version of history could find some way to say that, okay, we agree on one thing, at least at this moment, 30, 40 years ago at that point, just with a living memory, China was invaded, China didn't ask for it, but China fought back. And whichever side you were on, this is something that all Chinese can be proud of. And that, I think, remains a very strong element of the narrative that's being constructed in China. And in some ways, with a lot of back and forth and twists and turns, it was really, really put into motion in the early 1980s and still exists in a somewhat variant but actually very recognizable form to the present day, to the year 2020. Sure. So you've given us a bit of an overview of the mainstream thinking, but there are lots of other strains of historiography that you sort of pulled out among other writers. You want to highlight a few which you think really stood out to yeah. you as other ways to approach this question? Absolutely. Because, I mean, thanks for pointing out, uh, I hope I haven't, we haven't scared any listeners off by using the word historiography, because keep listening, I genuinely think it's actually pretty, pretty good, interesting stuff. Again, Rana, this is like, you're, you're talking to like your grad student seminar here. So the, don't, you, you got them already. Like, <laughs> Fantastic. I think from the outside, and I get this quite often when I'm asked about this book and this topic by non-China specialists, is, well, isn't this just all about kind of propaganda that Beijing is putting forward about you know, hating the Japanese and wanting to kind of boost Chinese nationalism? And there's no doubt that it is highly nationalistic in all sorts of ways. And some of it, I think, is to do with a pretty prejudicial view of the Japanese. And a little later, we may have a chance to talk about some of the cultural products of this particular wave, including recent TV shows, which have some pretty unpleasant portrayals of the Japanese in them. But actually, I think that what it really shows is the way in which different groups in China use this new opening up of the opportunity since the 1980s and 90s, opportunity to talk about World War II, to actually talk about what's on their minds. And that is very frequently something that the CCP central authorities in Beijing either really don't like or are not crazy about but are willing to tolerate, but it's certainly not their idea of what they were saying. So a few quick examples just to show so, the range of... So 
L- let me ne- interrupt you right there, Rana. I want to I want to take us to Liu Junyun, who dove into this 1942 famine in Henan, which I had never heard of. But you had this really striking moment in his book where he asks his grandmother about the famine, and her response is. What do you mean 1942? What about it? And so the author goes, I tell her this was a year. Many people died of starvation. And her response is people died of starvation all the time. It, it's, it's an amazing moment. And it tells you a great deal about the complexity of modern China. So 1942 was the year of a horrific famine, which killed probably you know 4 million people in Henan province, caused by a variety of issues ranging from natural disaster, to be fair. I mean, the, the harvest didn't do well because the, the weather wasn't good, but also deliberate policy by the Kuomintang of seizing grain and using it as taxation in kind to feed the troops, which left people starving in the, in the countryside. And the great American journalist, uh, Theodore White, who worked for Time magazine, wrote these blistering, angry reports about how the peasants were being left to starve in the fields while the grain went to feed the, the soldiers and the cities. But this event was really you know, covered over, just not talked about in history, in the Mao era and beyond. Not because it had anything to do with the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, because it, it, it didn't. It just, it was a depressing, anti-nationalistic story, if you could think of such a thing. And it wasn't really until much later, really the 80s and 90s, that various people started to look into the question. So Liu Junyun, who you mentioned, actually wrote a sort of fact-based novella about this called Remembering 1942, which uh, is also available in English translation, or at least part of it is. And it was based partly on asking his own grandmother, you know, when he found out a bit about this rumours of this famine, you know, what happened in 1942. And she was, you know, really quite vague in, in her own terms about it. But there are also other people involved, a very, very interesting woman, a local historian called Song Jusin, who basically just collected lots of materials about it at a time when nobody wanted to talk about it. Almost similar to Yang Jisheng, who famously wrote Mu Bei, the tombstone, which was about the Great Leap Forward famine just a few years later. And as things came together, it basically became clear that particularly on the 70th anniversary of the famine, which was in the year 2012, that a lot of things were going to come together. I mean, first of all, the novella that Liu Junyun had written inspired a film, which was quite a big hit in China during that year about the 1942 famine. And Song Jixin's account of the, the famine, the historical one, was reissued and sold a lot of copies. But here's the thing that I find yeah. really intriguing. There's also then lots of discussion on Weibo, which you'll remember at that point was much freer than it is now. You could get a lot more said without being censored at that point than would be the case even a couple of years later, in which various people looked at dialogue from the movie and started to read things into it. So at one point in the movie, you know, a guy runs into a, a, a local government office and says, the peasants are starving out in the countryside and yet the government refuses to listen and keeps seizing the grain. And of course, one critic wrote on the blog, so is the guy talking about 1942, which is the subject of the movie, or is he talking about the Great Leap Forward in the 1950s? And of course, you know, you can see both of those interpretations there. And there are plenty of bloggers who actually more openly said, well, look, obviously part of this movie, not all of it, but part of it is a metaphor. And they're talking about the Guomindang, but they actually mean the CCP. So people use these opportunities where World War II opens up stories that have been forgotten, not just to remember the history, and mourn and commemorate those who died, which is part of it, but also to make, in some cases, some pretty pointed comments about the present day regime. And as you know, Jordan, it's a very long standing Chinese habit, if you don't want to get into too much political trouble, to talk about something very historical, which has a very clear present day 
analogy, or even in this case, analogy to something that is historical, but is much more sensitive because it happened under the CCP, as opposed to the famine which happened under the Guomindang. Sure. Um, let's do, let's do, I mean, talk about the guy who wanted to make his own music, who, who started his own museums everywhere. One of the elements that I have found most notable in, I have to say, more than 20 years of pursuing the subject in, uh, in, in China is the way that museums have become so much part of the way in which people think about these issues. And I mentioned briefly one of the three or four big official museums, the, the one in Beijing. And of course, there's a huge museum of the Nanjing Massacre in, in Nanjing and also a September 18th museum in, in Shenyang. Those are all state-driven, very top-down, very big, monumental, literally monumental sort of institutions. But one of the things that has been emerging in the past few years, and certainly the last decade or two, is private museums which deal with the World War II experience. And these have actually taken off with a kind of life of their own. So one of the first ones I came to discover was Fan Jianchuan, who is a Sichuanese property developer, made a lot of money, and then turned his money to a very interesting enterprise, which is the opening of what I think must be China's largest private museum complex, maybe China's only private museum complex on the grounds it's got about 14 different branches within it, including, I think, China's only private museum of the Cultural Revolution, which of course is absolutely fascinating to think about in its own right. But the one that I really found interesting was the Museum of the Second World War, in which he does something which when he founded it in the, the early sort of 2000s was really very unusual which was to talk mostly about the local identity of fighters in Sichuan, where he's from. And it goes without saying, you know, the vast majority of these people are Kuomintang. They're not CCP. They had not had their contribution to the war really acknowledged in any kind of major sense for decades and decades. And Fan Chuan basically put together a, you know, quite significant museum with lots of artifacts from their contribution. And also a really interesting book, which again, I discuss in my own book called Igaran the Kangran, the One Person's War of Resistance, which is basically a sort of philosophical discussion of the meaning of the war in between showcasing his various artifacts. So, you know, he'll see something like an identity badge and then talk about, I wonder if this, you know, it's a woman in that case, it's a nurse, you know, she'd be 80 years old, if she was still alive now, I wonder how she was. And the most poignant one, bringing together so many strands, is a cup. And he puts this cup actually almost at the heart of his collection because on it is scribbled in slightly sort of miswritten Chinese characters. Basically, what sounds like a, a kind of a cry of anguish from an old former Guomindang soldier who's writing in the 1960s in the Cultural Revolution, I'm being persecuted. And the reason I'm being persecuted is because I fought in the Guomindang 20 years ago. But the reason I did that was to fight for my country against the Japanese. Why am I being harassed and tortured now? And Fan Jianchuan writes in his book, how on earth could we do this? Now, for this to be happening, obviously, in China itself, at any time, is quite a daring sort of enterprise. So, you know, he is someone who is clearly willing to find what the furthest boundaries are of what is permitted, and then say, these are stories we still have to tell. And just one other example, but it's one I visited you know, relatively recently, down in the southwest of China, on the Burma border, Tongchong, there's a huge open air museum, again, done very much through private funding and you know, private fundraising. But it commemorates the China Expeditionary Force, the Chinese soldiers who went into Burma, the only ones to fight outside China's borders during World War II, whose stories, again, had not been told for a long time because, of course, they were Guomindang. And this finally has been commemorated in quite a big way in this largely privately funded museum. So this commemoration wave, you might say, began to take off in probably the 2010s. 
catching the last wave of survivors because I mean many of these you know people who fought are in their 90s or you know yeah. maybe even over 100 years old and there aren't very many of them left and in a few years time they'll be completely gone but we're just at the end of that wave I think where memory and official commemoration and them being alive or at least a few of them have just come together at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I can't imagine. There are so many incredible human arcs and tribulations, but going from fighting for the KMT and being sort of hailed as a hero to being an uh, enemy of the people and making it out to the other side and sort of being rehabilitated and just like getting to be a normal person, but then all of a sudden there's a market economy and you're like in your 70s just must have, those are one hell of a life. It, it, it is, I think, actually worth this. There's a line that comes from one of the great Chinese media figures who was involved in this, and that's the now former Chinese talk show host, uh, Cui Yongyuan, who was a big feature on Chinese TV from the late 90s to the mid-2010s. He later became the sworn enemy of the movie star Fan Bingbing, and the two of them had all sorts of public spats, but we all uh, won't go down that route for... Uh, for oh, yeah, he's now. the one who exposed when, the whole uh, tax thing, right? Uh, allegedly, allegedly, as they say, Jordan. But, uh, yeah, I believe it's okay. been pretty much in the public sphere both in, in China and elsewhere. And I think there's no love lost between the two of them, I, I think it's fair to say. But the reason I brought Toyomyuan up is not so much because of the Fan Bingbing connection, but because he was actually one of the first people to do a really big visual oral history series, Wada Kangran, which again, if you're a Chinese speaker, just look for it online or sohu.com has it. And it's lots and lots of interviews with both CCP and KMT veterans. But the reason he came to mind at that point when he said that, Jordan, is that he tells a tale of tracking down these people for the first time to interview them. And they've been just ignored throughout the whole in the series of changes, you know, the Cultural Revolution and Deng Xiaoping's Market Revolution and all that. One of these elderly gentlemen said to uh, Tweet when Tweet turned up and said, I want to interview, he said, don't interview me. If you interview me, I think it's going to blow my mind because I just can't quite cope with the concept of it. I mean, he managed to get over it and be interviewed, so that was, was good. But, you know, it really was metaphorically mind-blowing for them that someone finally cared about their story. And Tui makes quite a lot of that in his explanation of why he did the show in the first place. And again, a good example of someone there who is very much within the system. You know, he's not a dissident or anything, but he was definitely trying to sort of push at the edges of what stories can we tell and how are we going to do this? And it ended up actually being a very successful series. You mentioned the the museum in Nanjing, and, and when I visited, I think this is, I'm not the only one to observe this. Clearly, there's a big Yad Vashem analogy where you have the architecture, you have this long thing, and you have all the struggle, and then at the end, there's this beautiful opening. Interestingly, at the end of Babai, it was very sort of Yad Vashem-y also, where like you have that fade out into modern Shanghai, right? And it's like, look, here's what we struggled for, and like here's our new future. But anyways, we'll get to Babai later. But um I, I just always found it very surprising in China how there is all of this sort of Holocaust-y stuff as well as like the Nanjing massacre Holocaust comparisons. You have this great anecdote in there that apparently she wanted to go visit Auschwitz, but the European politicians were so worried about him making it a political thing of like talking about the Chinese suffering at the hands of the Japanese that they said, oh, maybe maybe you, you can come next time. So, so what's going on here with all of this Holocaust content? It's a fascinating set of analogies. One of the very interesting and in some ways, I think, quite awkward analogies that gets used more and more is between the experience of the Holocaust and the Nazi murder of millions of Jews and an official Chinese discourse that is trying to essentially recreate aspects of China's experience, particularly of Japanese war crimes in China, such as the Nanjing Massacre, as being the equivalent. Now, 
it's quite rare that that is explicitly stated. And in some senses, I think China wants to make sure that people also realize its experience is, is unique to China. But there are hints and tips. And as you say, the um, architecture of the Nanjing Massacre Museum owes a great deal, and not accidentally, to Yad Vashem, including, you know, reflecting pools and other architectural features. If you go to both, you'll, you'll see the, the, the connection. And there are certainly exchanges between the two. So, you know, there's reports of regular visits by Chinese scholars to Yad Vashem to learn how things are done there. And these are then reported on in, in some of the Chinese journals. But the desire to try and politicize it is clearly there. If I could just adjust your, your statement slightly, Jordan, you're right that there was a diplomatic issue around Xi Jinping visiting Germany. It wasn't to visit Auschwitz. It was to visit in Berlin, actually, the Monument to the Murdered Jews of Europe, the Peter Eisenman Memorial. But the, the idea is, is, is the same. And his advance team apparently, this is from the news reports, made it clear that he'd like to give a talk there. And I think the Angela Merkel government was very, very keen to avoid this because they didn't know what he was going to say, but they thought it might well be something pretty disobliging about Japan. And so that, that was avoided, I think, rather, rather carefully. And I think that there's at least two elements going on here. One is the politicization, and that's undeniable. And, you know, that example, I think, shows it at one extreme. The other element, though, is something that goes back to the first comments we were making about the lack of knowledge of China's World War II experience. It is the case that very many millions of Chinese either died or suffered horrifically during the wartime years. And it's possible, I think, for us to have greater empathy for that as a formative experience without necessarily having to share any of the political messages that the Chinese Communist Party wishes to draw from that. And the problem is that when the two become conflated, because our level of knowledge in the West on either is relatively limited. And that, I think, is where some of the awkwardness comes in. You know, it, it, it should be more possible for us to improve our knowledge in the West to say we absolutely stand with understanding how much yeah. China suffered during those years. But that doesn't give you the right to rewrite the boundaries of the South China Sea or, you know, claim a historical equivalence, which isn't as exact as you would want it to, yeah. uh, to be. But to do that, you have to have the knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing, right? Because on the one hand, it's understandable, the reaction. Now that the Chinese government is more comfortable talking about this, it was an awful, horrible thing that the Japanese did. And speaking to a, like, a historian of Manchukuo, like, you know better than any other Westerner just how much the Chinese people suffered throughout all of it. And, you know, that shouldn't be negated at all. It's just difficult because you also can understand the Chinese frustration that no one cares and no one's heard of it. I guess like the Koreans sort of appreciate how obnoxious the Japanese were, but like the Americans don't anymore. Uh, a fair amount of Southeast Asia is like kind of reconciled, right? So the sort of cries for, hey, look, these Japanese people were really awful too is, you know, is justified. But it, as you said, it gets tricky when it's tied up with these justifications for political things that, are, you know, are very questionable. If I might throw in a thought there, Jordan, and I express this in, in the book as well, I think one of the things that makes it more acceptable as a narrative on the Western side is not just because the West is dominant. I mean, that may be, well be part of it, but, you know, it, it, it's not the whole story. Part of it is because we still have overall a narrative that is flawed but plausible, that in the end, all of the suffering of World War II on the Western side and decision that the Holocaust must never happen again was part of a discourse that suggested that, therefore, democratic, liberal government must be our end goal. Now, you can say a lot of things about what the Chinese government is trying to do in terms of 
you know, using collective memory of World War II. But one thing that's not promoting is liberal democratic government. And as I say, uh, with affection, I think, rather than necessarily uh, uh, anything more than that, but nonetheless pointing out, saying we fought World War II to save the world for consumerist authoritarianism, which might be a plausible account of one version of what China was up to, is not in and of itself necessarily a very plausible message. Now, clearly an awful lot more was going on, but the fact is that nonetheless the resonance of China's project in the present day in the wider world doesn't have enough legs with the rest of the world to be able to stand in the way that even when it's battered and bruised in all sorts of ways, you could say that that message of World War II was fought so that, you know, the West could be the arsenal of democracy, the, the, the Roosevelt-Churchill line. It just has more resonance, even in other parts of the world, even in places like Japan. Sure. One of the things that I think is part of the wider project of China looking to boost, not just domestically, but internationally, a more sympathetic understanding of its World War II experience is something that I've called the Cairo syndrome in the book. And I use this term because it relates to a particular World War II event, which is the Cairo Conference of 1943, one of about 15, 16 of the top summit conferences that was held during the course of the conflict, but the only one that featured the leader of China, Chiang Kai-shek, up in the Egyptian capital with Winston Churchill and Roosevelt. So in other words, the US president, British prime minister, and the Generalissimo of China sitting in equal standing for the first time together at an ally conference. That was symbolically a really important moment. This was being commemorated seven years ago now, so the 70th anniversary, 2013, in a big way in the Chinese press, at a time when, frankly, most of the West was not spending much time remembering this event. Why were they doing that? Well, partly because of the historical symbolism, but actually there was a much more pragmatic purpose, because at the end of the conference in November 1943, the three leaders signed off on a communique, which was quite long, but one part of it was very key. And it basically said, when the war is over, which they knew it would be within a few years, we, meaning the Allied powers, will get to decide where the territories of Japan's empire are distributed back to, with the exception of the Japanese home islands. And then here's the key phrase, and such small islands as we determine. I think that's the phrasing. And of course, this has enabled a whole can of worms to be opened up about the islands, which if you're in Japan, they're called Senkaku. If they're in China, they're called uh, Diaoyu. Eight uninhabited islands halfway across the, the East China Sea. And of course, the Chinese claim to these has been going up and down over the years. But the ability to use this World War II communique in Cairo in 1943 was a huge part of the diplomatic weaponry. In fact, lawfare, I know, uh, Jordan, is something that you specifically very involved with. So this is a very good example of lawfare, I think, where they were basically trying to use historical example as a means of arguing the international law as expressed through the Cairo communique and then the Potsdam conference were giving ballast to China's claim. But the catch, and of course, this is the one thing that was never stated, is that to make it work by implication, or really everything short of being explicit, they basically had to say, well, in that case, that means that Chiang Kai-shek's standing and his claims were valid at the time because it wasn't yeah. Chairman Mao who was there in uh, in Cairo. I mean, I don't see Taiwan making claims on the Diaoyu Islands, but, you know, anything well, can happen. Actually, right? actually, they do, Jordan. Uh, oh, really? the, the Republic of China on Taiwan claims them under a third name, and they're called Diaoyu Tai, with the Tai added on as well. So under <laughs> the presidency of Ma Ying-jiu in Taiwan uh, a few years ago, there was more of a claim. The DPP, I think, is not so, so keen to push that because then it would 
you know, suggest a kind of continuity with Chinese history. But no, Taiwan has been in that mix as well. And so that desire to basically use World War II historical examples to make very, very present day claims on Asian territory. That's what I call the Cairo syndrome. It's a very narrow road to walk, right? But it also is sort of more doable than it was in the Mao era, right? Given that the, there are more parts of the, the Chiang Kai-shek legacy that the CCP is embracing. Yes. I mean, previously to say, you know, the era of Mao, it would have been pretty close to impossible because there was almost no positive or to say no positive aspect of the Chiang Kai-shek period that could be talked about. And now there are a whole variety of things that, if they're not explicitly listed as being Chiang Kai-shek, nonetheless are from that era. So another good example, the Tokyo war crimes trials, which happened, of course, in 1948. The judge who was there, Mei Ruao, was, of course, a nationalist judge, not a communist judge. Oh, here's the one, actually, that really is the gift that keeps on giving. April 1945, a delegation of 11 Chinese, mostly Kuomintang, but one communist and a few non-partisan, turn up in San Francisco to sign the UN Charter. Fast forward to February this year, and this was the last chance that I had to uh, leave the UK before the lockdown hit. I went to Munich for the Munich Security Conference and heard a speech by Foreign Minister Wang Yi. And Wang Yi started out by essentially making this line and saying to his American friends, as he, as he called them, I think, um, you have to remember, if you're going to give China a hard time about international order, you know, we were there first. We were signatories, the first signatories to the UN Charter in 1945. Now, we there has to mean the Republic of China on Taiwan with a communist member of the delegation because you know, Chairman Mao sure as heck wasn't in San Francisco any more than he was in Cairo. I have one story on this. Um, I, I wrote my thesis on this, so we're going we're gonna to pull one from the archives here. So my favorite part of Dunbar and Oaks, which was one of the final meetings where the allies sort of got together and really got down to negotiating what the UN Charter would, was going to look like. And the Americans were really keen on getting the KMT to seem like they were really involved and like a part and a real world leader and whatever. But the Soviets were like, we don't care what they think. So what they ended up doing is they would schedule like late night meetings with the British and the Soviets and the Americans and kind of like let poor, incredibly brilliant, but ultimately relatively powerless diplomat Wellington Koo go out for a stroll or whatever while they really got down to brass tacks of what the um, uh, you know Security Council and, and whatnot would end up looking like. I have to say the Brits were very much the same minded. After you go back to the Cairo conference for a second, when Winston Churchill heard that Roosevelt and the Americans were going to invite Chiang Kai-shek, his first reaction was, well, can't he and Madame Chiang Kai-shek just go off and see the pyramids and do a bit of tourism while we do the kind of real real stuff. I have to say they also, Roosevelt and um, Churchill turned up like two weeks later in Tehran with Stalin and did the real dealing there with Chiang Kai-shek out the way. So, you know, the symbolic importance was great. The strategic importance may be a bit more dubious. I think that there is an overall reformulation of narrative here, which comes off the back of this new version of China as a former of world order that, that goes like this. It's never stated explicitly like this, but this is essentially what it means. For a very long time, the beginning of the new China was 1949, Mao's victory on the mainland. The Chinese people have stood up, all of that. And that's still very much there, as anyone who looked at the 70th anniversary of the founding, the Tianguo, last year will have seen. So that hasn't gone away. But there's an alternative version, which you hear, particularly in international contexts, which is, OK, but there's another version of our history that begins in 1945. In other words, with China becoming a great power at the end of World War II, UN Security Council, you know, a victorious allied power alongside the Americans and the British and the Soviets, and that therefore our right today to try and reshape the region 
derives at least some of its moral power from that contribution and sacrifice we made, just as the American one does from having lost all those young men fighting in the Pacific, which means that, you know, 75 years on, they haven't left Asia yet. So that's a version of the sort of Chinese rewriting of chronology in which both 1949, of course, but also 1945, both have significance in terms of shaping the way that they want to present to the uh, the world. And acknowledging the World War II experience is obviously central to that. Otherwise, that narrative doesn't make sense. I have some sad news to report. Over the past few months, China Talk listenerships has flatlined with downloads hovering right around 6,000 per show. Since you've made it through 45 minutes of a conversation on the legacy of World War II, I am certain that you have at least one friend who would like this channel. So please tell them. The show is on Spotify, Apple, and any other podcast platform you can think of. Thanks in advance for helping spread the word. All right, now we've come to the fun part. Let's talk movies, Rana. First off, like, you you seem to watch a ton of this stuff. Do you, like, make your family sit through with it also? I mean, like, what? where, where do you find time to watch these, like, 10-part documentaries about Japanese war crimes? So... I, I think one of the, the experiences I'm sure my wife would tell you, which makes married life a joy, is that there's nowhere to run. And, you know, when I've got the, the screen up and running in bed and we're watching yet another really, really poor Chinese war movie. I mean, sometimes we can't quite bear to get to the end in one go. You have to kind of go through. I have to say that actually I've switched uh, in terms of actually a movie that wasn't wasn't bad at all. Actually, I really yeah. enjoyed uh, you know, the 800. Uh, bye bye. I ended up uh, getting my 12 year old daughter to watch that instead, which may be a little old for her, actually. But so she seemed to enjoy it. I was about to say, I mean, that was... I was like, yeah. oh, like we got the bullet in the eye. And yeah, that's was... the kind of, kind of stuff. She really enjoyed that part and was very insistent we must see the rest. <laughs> it's really interesting, right? Because in China, there's no ratings for movies. So anyone can walk into anything. There's not like R or PG-13. And, you know, most movies are not gory. Like the vast majority of movies are not gory. And this movie, uh, which we're talking about now, Babai, the 800, was the highest grossing film of the year. When, when you say that, Jordan, do you mean that it grossed the most money or it was the most gross movie? I mean, both. It was extra. Like, like it's it, it's funny how the the censors or whatever they had many issues with this movie, but clearly one of them that they did not have was very explicit violence and like extended close ups yeah. of just poor Chinese soldiers being, um, you know, blown up in various ways yeah. by the Japanese devils. Right. I mean, you know, there is something about this genre of films that seems to love large amounts of, frankly, gratuitous violence. And I mean, I should say that, at least in my discussion of movies in the book, I do try and put in some that I think are restrained and brilliant. I mean, I'm thinking there of Nanjing Nanjing, directed by the great Lu Chuan, which actually is highly restrained and is not kind of gore fest in any sort of a way. So there are movies there which I think have a more restrained sensibility on this question. But it is the case, I think it's absolutely fair to say, that an awful lot of World War II movies and also TV series in China are basically going for, you know, the kind of uh, splatter gore. And I think that there are cases put forward, in fact, you've probably seen this, where, you know, SAF, the State Administration Radio, Film and TV, were actually sending out directives, you know, supposedly secret, they probably got leaked to everyone, to film producers saying, could you stop making these really lame films in which, like, one grenade brings down 300 Japanese in one go? Because it's actually disrespectful to the war of resistance to make it look that way. The reason, though, that I think that actually movies like Babai... The 800 are, are interesting, apart from the intrinsic story, which I thought was very well done, actually, 
Is the difference in the reception in those movies in China, where, as you pointed out, it's the single biggest grossing movie. Actually, I think in the world, because so few other places have had cinemas that are open that actually, you know, made more money than anywhere. And the release of those movies in the West. 800 actually hit British cinemas for like a week or something. And then it was kind of wiped out, first of all, by the fact that the pandemic has come back here and we've had to shut down all the cinemas. But also... It did not get good ratings from the, the film reviewers here, you know, the, the Times of London, The Guardian, these sorts of papers. They gave it pretty, pretty rank ratings. And one of the reasons is that the things that I think you and I and our listeners would find interesting, Jordan, for instance, the fact that a movie about Guomindang soldiers with not a communist to be seen anywhere ended up doing this box office business in China. None of them caught, none of the critics caught that. It was like, oh, this is a very gory nationalistic movie and it's all about, you know, Chinese killing Japanese, which actually, the Chinese killing the Japanese in a weird way is the least interesting thing about it. So it it brings me to the point that I think it's going to be hard, even if that's what the Chinese propaganda project, if you want to call it that way. I don't think that the Baba is is very good as propaganda. It's actually not a bad film, but it's not the best. It's not simplistic enough to be good propaganda in that sense. I just think it's kind of hard to read in a different way. I mean, this is not just a problem for propaganda. And I'll say this because actually, as I'm speaking to you, I'm prepping up in literally an hour's time, actually, to do an event I'm really excited about, almost as excited as I have to talk to you, Jordan, which is with Ai Weiwei, a great artist and someone who obviously is outside the Chinese circuit in a big way. But he's made this new movie about the coronavirus called Coronation. Well worth seeing. Please go and see it. I would say, and I'm going to say that to him too, that, you know, this is a movie that is fantastic, moving, all the things you'd expect from Ai Weiwei production. It's not that easy to understand if you don't know about China. You know, it takes an awful lot of expectation that you're going to know what these places are, why people live the way. There's a whole discussion in it, which you and I find fascinating, between a communist mother in her 80s and a kind of more ambivalent son talking about whether the CCP has got it right or not. But if you don't know anything about the CCP, then actually it's quite a hard um, dialogue to get into. So I think there is still this element of not being able to translate important narratives, whether it's a kind of quote marks, alternative discourse about coronavirus on the IOA side, or whether it's actually a kind of state endorsed, but in some ways quite nuanced statement about the Guomindang, which is being permitted within China itself in a way that the Weiwei movie never, yeah. never would be. You know, there's a complexity there that takes a certain amount of work to get into. And I just wonder how much people are willing to put in that work if they're not already kind of bitten by the, the China bug. I mean, I think it doesn't matter. I think this being an enormous movie in China is more than they could have hoped for. But what's really interesting, of course, is with this movie, it was supposed to debut at Cannes and was pulled the day before. Um, I don't know if it was if it actually, you know, exactly came out what the issue was, but presumably it was something about being too nice to the Guomindang or, 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 or whatever, because that's the most sensitive part. And there are a few sort of narratives going throughout this movie. The first is that like, of course, you have the necessary title slide at the end saying, like, thanks to the leadership of the Chinese party, we ended up defeating. And there's sort of all of this, like, we're sacrificing for a better tomorrow. The implication being, like, the better tomorrow is contemporary China. I alluded to this earlier that, like, basically the, the story is there's this final holdout garrison. Or why don't you do the story really quickly? Well, I mean, you um, did a great job of summarizing, but just to sort of, you know, brief, briefly give it. Basically, it's based on a true story. In November 1937, as the last stand was being made by the Guomindang armies in Shanghai in a huge battle in which tens of thousands of soldiers were killed, the a small group of soldiers 
there weren't actually 800 of them despite the title. In fact, they boosted their numbers to make them sound bigger than they were, probably about 400, holed up in a warehouse, which is on the just the other side of the, the Bund waterfront. And they basically held out there for four days and then finally had to withdraw and retreat. But, you know, it was a sign that the Chinese troops would go down fighting. They would not simply kind of turn tail and, and, and run in the face of the Japanese. So it was a sort of Dunkirk-type story, you might say, a kind of heroic retreat rather than a victory in and of itself. And I think that was one of the reasons that, several reasons why the film, as you say, was pulled literally the night before it was supposed to open the Shanghai International Film Festival last year. This movie, I mean, many people will know about it, but just to remind this movie was a big deal. It was not some kind of indie dissident thing that someone made in their backyard. You know, it was like a budget of, I think, 80 million US, which in China gets a lot further than it does in, in America. It was the first ever... The same, or, the same director as like Lao Par. It's Guanghu. This... It's it's, exactly. It's yep. uh, Guanghu. It's also... It was the first ever, I think, Chinese all IMAX movie for those who have those sorts of... You know, so, you know, a lot of money and effort. And of course, it had been passed through SAFT uh, as well. You know, you wouldn't get to make a movie like that without it being signed off. Rumor has it, and there was quite a lot of press speculation that it was something called the Red Culture Association, i.e., you know, Hong Ardai, Hong Sandai, people related to the CCP elders and, you know, kind of senior aristocrats, you might say, of, of that, just said, look, we're not going to allow this movie to be released in the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC. But then a year later, because it was VJ Day plus 75, that was clearly considered more appropriate in that setting. So, you know, the contemporary politics of this Kuomintang CCP issue are not settled at all. It's still possible for things to get through the system and then be pulled up last minute, then put back on. And my understanding is that right now in a whole variety of fields, including academia, actually the Guomindang story is one that people are being told to kind of stay away from a bit because I, I assume it has to do with the Taiwan issue at the moment. You know, it's very sensitive to, to use the phrase that you always hear in China. But the one thing that seems to me assured is that World War II keeps on throwing up analogies, metaphors, connections, narratives, even in 2020, even in China. I mean, just in this year alone, there are yeah. two or three different things you can think of, whether they're TV or films or commemorations or whatever, all of which have drawn on that particular set of events. So it shows no sign of giving up that kind of metaphorical quality that it clearly has in China. It was fascinating the sort of way they dealt with the KMT because you can't really make them heroes, right? Which is what you see in any PLA-related war movie where the people can do no wrong. So it actually ends up giving you sort of more interesting character development. One thing I wanted to come back to is like the heroization of this guy who does like a kamikaze thing. Which I found really fascinating because generally in the West, like one of the ways, at least during World War II and, and afterwards, that we sort of other, othered the Japanese was by saying these people are so crazy. Like, how could they sacrifice their lives like that? They must be subhuman if they don't value their own lives. Whereas in this movie and in other Chinese things, like giving your life to the country in such a transparent way of like, you know, strapping grenades onto yourself and jumping out of a window is something that's sort of... Looked, looked highly upon. Yes, I mean, one has to admit that it's not necessarily simply an East Asian difference. Um, your current president was at least rumoured on visiting a, a war cemetery, I think, in, in Europe, was it, on D-Day to have asked, why do they, you know, let themselves get killed? What was in it for them? So the, the idea that these things are not just purely transactional uh, doesn't simply uh, stick to uh, to East Asia. I mean, the thing is, one of the reasons why it's always so, you know, interesting seeing the contrast between China and Japan, to, to name just those two countries, is that so much is similar in so many ways. And often yeah. it is actually the elements of 
you know, deep familiarity that make the enmity as well as the closeness so closely linked. I think this is actually true in a sense for thinking about China's internal battles as well. I think it's one of the reasons why World War II becomes useful. If you think about the Civil War, all of these people who end up fighting each other, and of course, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, but also, you know, beyond that, you think about all the big figures like Zhou Enlai, um, I'm trying to think on the Kuomintang side, you know, sort of Wang Shijie, all these people, even the collaborators in World War II, like uh, Zhou Fuhai and others, you know, they all knew each other. I mean, you Sun Yat-sen. Yeah, you know, so, you know, they were all people who had basically either been at Peking University together or they'd been on the Long March or they've actually been at the Huangpu Academy, you know, the Wampo Academy. You know, that was a place where so many people, you know, basically learned about each other. And that's why when I've looked at diaries from wartime figures and post-war figures, you find, I mean, I think one of the, just one example, because I think it sums it up. One of the things that's great in Chiang Kai-shek's personal diaries, he never was very keen on Mao. He keeps on calling him, you know, a gongfei, a communist bandit. But he frequently referred to Zhou Enlai as Enlai. And you know how unusual it is for a Chinese person, particularly someone pretty stiff like Chiang Kai-shek, to refer to anyone by their personal name only. This is a sign, I think, that the connections between people are often much more of a network, much more constitutive of the way that they think about those wider national questions that we sometimes realize. And it's the danger of, you know, we talk about the communists versus the nationalists or whatever it might be, to forget that actually these are real life people who knew each other, grew up with each other, hated each other and killed each other, but also were very intimate in, in certain ways. Ron Emitter, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. It's been a huge pleasure, Jordan, and great to talk to you. And I hope that we'll have a chance to, to do that again. My in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. 
Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code PREPARED20. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.